This teaching is brought to you by Christian Family Church International. I have the great privilege of bringing the word today, but before I do, I do want to give honor where honor is due and make some noise for the best senior pastors in the world. Can we do that, Apostle Theo and Dr. Bev? Come on. We love you. We love you, mom and dad. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I do not take it lightly. Can we close our eyes? Let me pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you so much for this opportunity that we get to sit around your word. We fully acknowledge and are aware that there are places around the world where this is illegal. So the very fact that we get to gather like this is a privilege. And for that, Lord, we say thank you. Father, I make it publicly known that I do not rely nor depend on my own limited human abilities to teach here this morning. But I do rely on you, Holy Spirit, to teach through me and speak through me and say exactly what you would have your children hear. Father, I declare that as the word is preached here today, that every heart is open to receive and every hearer of the word will be a doer of the word also. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen, amen. Hey. If you are wondering if Revival Prayer on a Tuesday night is working or not, I just want to let you know that Bafana Bafana are in the semi-finals of a tournament. So if the Lord can do it for Bafana Bafana, He can do it for ESCOM, He can do it for SAA, He can... Come on, can you give the Lord a praise for what He's doing in South Africa? This month, like I said, is the month of love. So we start a brand new series, and it's called ER. Now, ER usually stands for emergency room. We as a church are aware that over the past few years, relationships have really taken a knock. It's been a very, very tough tough time for some people. We acknowledge, perhaps, that some of us and our relationships are in critical care, and therefore we need critical Jesus to come in and help us in our critical situation. But not only that, ER, for us, this series is called Extraordinary Relationships. Now, some might say that standard is a little bit too high. Clive, why didn't the church call the series Good Relationships? Why didn't the church call the series Healthy Relationships? It seems like extraordinary is a little bit too high. Well, I'm here to remind you that God has not called us to be ordinary. He's called us to be extraordinary. Can I get an amen? God has called us to be extraordinary. So while the world may tell you, hey, just float by and get just 50%, or is it 30% now in schools? I don't know. Just float by and get 50%. Do just enough to stay married. Do just enough to be a good friend. Do just enough to survive your relationships. We as a church say no. We say God has called us to have extraordinary relationships. And I want to let you know that extraordinary relationships are possible. So over the next couple of weeks, we'll be teaching on that and helping you understand that God has not made you ordinary. Look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, God has not made you ordinary, but he's actually made you extraordinary. So our theme verse today is Romans 12, verse 2, and this is what it says. It says, do not become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God and you'll be changed from the inside out. But we don't really like inside out. That's not really the culture right now. We say, Lord, I would like biceps, triceps, an eight-pack, but I don't have the discipline on the inside to wake up early enough. Some of us are saying, Lord, why don't you make her less angry on the outside? 
Lord, why don't you make him more patient? It's all external, but what we have to understand is that in order for the external to change, the internal must change first. So it says this in Romans 12, it says, readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. The world will always tell you that marriage is hard. Marriage sucks. There's nothing good that comes out of marriage. Why don't you just date here, download this app. You can just go around and do whatever you want. That's what they'll tell you because they want to drag you down to their level of immaturity. But God wants the best for you. He says God, it says God brings the best out of you and develops well-formed maturity in you. See, child of God, God wants the best, area, the best for you in your temperament, your attitude, your marriage, your communication, and your conflict resolution. Even in your intimacy, God wants the best for you. Say, God wants the best for me. But here's the thing. It starts on the inside. So I'd like to maybe give you an illustration of the heart. The heart is the center of everything. Everything centers around your heart. You can live without a pinky or a toe. You can live without an arm or a leg, perhaps. You can even live with some of your organs on the inside missing, and you'll be fine. But if your heart stops, everything else stops as well. And so we know that there is cardiovascular disease, which is, by the way, the number one killer in the world. But after the pandemic, we've started to see that there might be spiritual cardiovascular disease happening as well. And so as the first point of this series, we're not just going to deal with the external stuff and tell you how you guys can stop fighting and tell you perhaps how you can go from single to engaged to married. That's all external for now. What we want to start with is what's on the inside. And that's why this message is called A Matter of the Heart. Proverbs 4, verse 23 says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Some translations say that from it flow the issues of life. And when Jesus came, Jesus came to move us away from just being so externally minded to being internally minded. In fact, the easiest way to understand the Old Testament versus the New Testament is this, that in the Old Testament, there were external things that you had to do in order to fix your internal relationship with God. But when Jesus came, he said, I want to place the emphasis on the internal. I want to focus on what's going on inside your heart. So Jesus said things like this in Luke 6, 43. Jesus says that a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. For you will know a tree by its fruit. He says, for men do not look for figs on a thorn bush. Men do not look for grapes on a, on a, on a, on a brushel, but instead... The good man, out of the good in his heart, will bring forth good. And the evil man, out of the evil in his heart, will bring forth bad. And he said, out of the abundance of the, come on, say it with me. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what Jesus is saying is, hey, that person speaks that way because of what's going on on the inside. That person lives that way because of what's going on on the inside. If you ever have to wonder, why is that person that way? Nine times out of ten, it's because there's something on the inside that has to be fixed. But here's the good news. Jesus can fix your broken heart. Amen. Amen. He spoke about it in different contexts. He spoke about it in the context of marriage and remarriage and even divorce. When the Pharisees try to trap him in Matthew 19, verse 3, it says, Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. 
Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for any reason? This is what Jesus said. Haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus replied, they record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And let me just stop right there and just let everybody know that we at Christian Family Church believe that they are not more than two genders. We at Christian Family Church believe that God made them both male and female, full stop. That's the end of the story. Jesus said, and this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. So the Pharisees continue and said, okay, fine. Then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts. But it was not what God originally intended. So anytime you find yourself in a place where you are in something or doing something or with something and that or with someone and that is not what God originally intended, you have two choices. You can either fix that issue in your own strength and be miserable doing that, or you can trust God to start working with what's in your heart. You can address the condition of your heart. In the Old Testament, it speaks about something called the breast piece of decision. And when I saw it, I thought it was incredible. Exodus 28, verse 29, it says, Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart. You see, every time you come to God, you bear a name on your heart. You are the sum total of everything that's happened to you. And all of that is inside your heart. We can see the same thing in this very building. I can show you the same thing. But we will perceive it differently. Our lives are seen through filters. And everything you do. Every decision you make is made through that filter. And usually it's four things. Your pain, your past, problems, and people. Those are usually the things that shape your thinking and that shape your decisions. So it says, whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breast piece of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. Thus, Aaron will always bear the means of making decisions for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. So your decisions come from your, from your heart. So my question to you is, what filter are you putting your decisions through? Because if you're putting them through that unhealed, unforgiving, unrepentant heart, you will keep asking questions like, why, why, why am I still so angry? Why do I still find it hard to listen to authority figures? Why do I struggle so much in this area? It's because of the filter that you're putting those decisions through. And child of God, if you don't start there, if you don't fix what's going on on the inside, those things will never change. So let me tell you a story about two geniuses. You can find this story in Malcolm Gladwell's book called Outliers. Outliers was the book that introduced to the world the concept that you can do something for 10,000 hours. If you do something for 10,000 hours, you would be deemed an expert in that field. And so in that book, Malcolm Gladwell has two chapters called The Trouble with Geniuses, and he describes two geniuses. The first genius is a, is a man by the name of Chris Langan. Chris Langan is deemed the smartest man in America. He has an IQ of 195. For context and for those that don't understand what that means, Albert Einstein's IQ was 130. This man has an IQ of 195. He's a complete genius. 
At the age of three, he's already taught himself how to read. At the age of five, he was already asking his parents questions about God and God's existence. They say Chris Langan was so smart that he would walk into his language literature class, and if the teacher just went away for a little bit, even though he hadn't studied, he would skim the book just a little bit and ace that test. He was an absolute genius. But here's the thing. Chris Langan came from an extremely poor family. They grew up with holes in their clothes. His brother actually describes them washing their clothes in the bathtub, but they were washing their clothes in the bathtub naked because those were literally the only clothes they had. That is how poor Chris Langan was. He had a terrible relationship with his father. His actual father, his biological father, ran away when he was born. His mother's second husband was murdered. Her third husband committed suicide. And her fourth husband was a man by the name of Jack Langan. Jack Langan was a completely abusive person who used to abuse Chris and all of his brothers. He used to use a bullwhip to keep them in line. He would lock the cupboard so that they wouldn't get to the food. He was a terrible man. He was a terrible, terrible man. But here's the thing, in spite of that, Chris Langan still managed to go to college. He went to college the first time and he aced it. He was an A student at college. But one day he was called into the office of his student advisor and they said, hey Chris, we have to kick you out of college. And he said, why? They said, well, because your mom didn't fill in these financial aid documents properly. Here's the thing, Chris, Chris's mom didn't know how to fill in those forms, and so she didn't fill in those forms. And so Chris tries to speak to the advisor and say, please, please can I stay? And the student advisor says no. They kick him out of college. Chris then goes and works for a while, decides I'm gonna go back to college, I'm gonna try this thing again. He goes to college the second time at a completely different college. Now he's a man and he's working. Chris, at this point in time, has a car, and so he's driving back and forth from college and home. He goes to them and says to them, hey guys, listen, I'm having some, tr uh, some car trouble, so could you move my classes from the morning to the afternoon so that I won't be late for my classes? His advisors said no. Chris started to fail his tests and eventually dropped out of college. This man with a one in a million mind would go on to work in construction and then work the rest of his adult life as a nightclub bouncer someone with an IQ of 195. So you might ask yourself why. It's because around the town that they were born, which was Bozeman, they were known as deadbeats that would never amount to anything. And when those words were said, it was written on Chris's heart. You will never amount to anything. You're a deadbeat. That's all you'll ever be. And he was never able to get past that. He was never able to succeed. The second genius that Malcolm Gladwell speaks about is a man by the name of Robert Oppenheimer. That might sound familiar to you because there was a movie that was made about this very man. Robert Oppenheimer as well, complete genius. By grade three, he's already doing lab experiments. By grade five, he's already studying chemistry and physics at grade five. He was so smart that his cousins used to say that Robert Oppenheimer would say, if you ask me a question in Latin, I'll respond and answer in Greek. That's how smart he was. That's how smart he was. And so Robert Oppenheimer went to the best universities. He went to Harvard. Not only did he go to Harvard, he went to Cambridge. When he got to Cambridge, Robert Oppenheimer became depressed. And he had some conflict with a student advisor there. And you'll never guess what he did. He tried to kill that student advisor. He tried to poison that very person. And you would think, well, if this first genius was kicked out of college for a financial aid form, surely, surely trying to kill your student advisor means that you're going to be out. No. He was given probation. 
He was given probation and was never kicked out. Robert Oppenheimer as well, when it was time to create the Manhattan Project, when America was like, we want to make the first ever atomic bomb. They went out and they looked for different scientists that could head up this project. At that time, Robert Oppenheimer had a dodgy political affiliation. Robert Oppenheimer was the youngest and the least experienced, but still, the American government chose him to lead the project. So here you have a split screen, and you can imagine it in your mind, two geniuses that have a one in a million type of mind, that live life, but their outcomes are completely different. Why? Well, Chris Langan was told that he would never amount to anything. On the other side of the screen, you have Robert Oppenheimer, who grew up in a wealthy family. And Malcolm Gladwell speaks about the fact that in families like that, Robert Oppenheimer was probably taught how to be charming. He was probably taught how to win people over with his speech. While Chris Langan had an issue with authority figures because his father treated him so badly, he wasn't able to sit in front of people and get the desired outcome. But because of what was written on Robert Oppenheimer's heart, he was told that he'd be the greatest. And so life turned out completely different for these two different geniuses. And that is the power of a name written on your heart. There are names, there are experiences. There are names and there are experiences that you've gone through that have marked you. Some of you have, have been told that you're stupid, that you'll never amount to anything, that you're just like your father, you're just like your mother. Don't you know that in this family we don't go to varsity? That is your reality. And because of the name that is written on your heart, maybe your life has gone in a direction you never planned to. But child of God, I've got incredible news for you today. Jesus can heal that unhealed heart. Those names, those experiences will help us fix our communication, our conflict, and even our sexual intimacy. It says this, that whatever is written on your heart will be the very thing that affects your life. But first, it starts with a name. I'm going to tell you a story out of the Bible right now about a man. The first man you probably have never heard of. But the second one, his son, is extremely famous. And his name is Abram. So it says this in Genesis 11, verse 27. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot, while his father, Terah, was still alive. Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans and in the land of his birth. So this is what we know, that Haran has died. The baby of the family has died. But what we know for sure is that he died prematurely. Why do we know that? Because his father is still alive. His father is still alive. So the baby of the family is now dead. And the Bible even tells us where it happened. It says that Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is the place or the land of his birth. For our context today, Ur of the Chaldeans will represent the place where God doesn't want you to be, but the place where you are stuck. And that's why they call it Ur. <laughs> It'll represent the place where God does not want you to be, but the place where you are stuck. It's called Ur of the Chaldeans. Someone say Ur. Ur. It says, Terah took his son Abram his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. That's interesting. Canaan. Sounds familiar. Canaan is the promised land. Could it be that the original call might have not been on Abram at all? Could it be 
that the original call might have been on Terah and not Abraham, and that God might have been known as God, the God of Terah, Abram, and Isaac, and not Abram, Isaac, and Jacob? Could it be that God is calling you to go to a place? And maybe, perhaps, he's calling you because the generations before you didn't make it. You might think that you're a one-in-a-generation Christian or whatever in your family, but could it be, could it be that God is still calling you? Could it be that God is still calling someone out of your family to change your family? To change your family? Just a question. I'm not saying it as a matter of fact. It says, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. Wait a minute, Clive. I thought you said Haran was the name of the child. It is. So what's essentially happened here is that Terah has left the place where God did not want him to be, the place that he was stuck in, and has told him to go to Canaan, the promised land. And on his way there, he got to a place that had the same name as the name of the son that he had lost. And he got stuck there. He got stuck in the place that reminded him about the baby boy that he had lost. And the saddest thing for us as leaders of this church is that we try to get people out of the place where they are stuck to the place where God has promised them to be. But they get to the place of their pain and they get stuck there and they settle there. They never move from there because that place represents their past. That place represents their pain. That place represents the people that hurt them there. But God doesn't want you to stay there. He does not want you to stay in Haran. He does not want your dreams to die where you are. But because you've left this place where you were stuck and you were happily on your way, you are now stuck. And like terror, you could die in the place where your pain is most evident. He was supposed to get to the promised land. He was supposed to get to, to Canaan. He was supposed to live an extraordinary life. But terror just ended up being ordinary. You know what the funny thing is? In chapter 12, God says, hey, Abram, could you go? Hey, Abram, your dad couldn't go, but could you? And what did we learn last week from Apostle Theo? As soon as the promise was about to be fulfilled in Abram's life, what did God do? He changed his name. There's power in a name. There's power in a name. So God changed Abram's name, and then the promise was fulfilled. So in the same way that God understand that understands that there's power in the name, the devil understands it as well. He understands it full well, full, full, full well. So in this next passage of Scripture, in Daniel, that's exactly what happens. Daniel and the power of a name. For context, what's happened here is that the children of Israel have been exiled. They're in Babylon. And while they're in Babylon, they're there as slaves. And this is what your Bible says in Daniel 1. Verse 1 to 7. It says, Then the king ordered Asphanaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. Young men. Young men. Which is usually where our names are written is when we are young. And that is why there's an attack on our primary schools, on our high schools, and our universities. And the world is trying to rename your child. And parents, I need to speak to you. I, am, I may only be a parent of 14 weeks, but please, if we don't wake up, in the next 10, 15, and 20 years, we'll be speaking to children who we do not recognize because we didn't give them the name that they go by. 
They are living according to the name that the government has given them. They are living according to the name that social media has given them. But we as parents have the responsibility to say, my child, you are ahead and not beneath. My child, you are royal priesthood. You are made by God. You're a man of God. You're a woman of God. I believe you're going to change the world. That is who they are. But parents, it starts with us. Parents, it starts with us. We can continue to ignore every single petition that people ask us to sign. When 4SA says, please, Christians, sign this petition. Help us fight for you in government. You'd rather scroll past it and comment on your friend's thing. Oh, wow, Spain looks nice this year. But we have a responsibility to change the name that are given to our children. Continues in Daniel. It says, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude of every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned to them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. And among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, and perhaps maybe three names you don't recognize, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It says, the chief official gave them what? The chief official gave them what? Gave them new names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belteshazzar. To, to Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. And this is essentially what those names mean. Daniel, which meant God is my judge, was tr transferred or changed to Belteshazzar, which means lady protect the king, which is a feminine name which is exactly what's happening in our society today. There is a emasculation of young boys. And as the father of a boy, I want to speak to those parents who have boys in their families. Tell that boy who he is in Christ. Tell that boy you believe he can do anything. Tell that boy he's supposed to conduct himself in a certain kind of way. We're just letting them parent themselves. I'm here to explain to you that I believe that there is an actual attack on young men in our society, but it's going to take us to change that. Amen. What that means for us today is a confused identity. From Hananiah, which means Yahweh has been gracious, it was changed to Shadrach. I am fearful of God. And what that means is a distorted spirituality. So we live in a society where they say the Bible is an old, antiquated book. It is anti-woman. Do not read the Bible. It doesn't want you to be free. In fact, the spirituality is so distorted that they're telling you, you can smoke mushrooms and take drugs so that you can open your proverbial third eye, so that you can see into the cosmos, so that you can know what the actual foundations of the universe are. That is the kind of society we live in. This distorted spirituality speaks to the fact that so many young people are all of a sudden becoming sangoman. Is it just me? Every celebrity, every other cousin that I have, it seems like life gets very difficult for them, and then they become sangomas, and they begin to say, I saw my grandmother in a dream. I saw my uncle in a dream. That must mean that I must be a sangoma. But they were never called to be that. They were never called to be that. They were never called to be that. And to every single person that might be sitting in this place right now who thinks that they're supposed to be a sangoma, I'm here to tell you that that is an evil spirit. You were never meant to be a sangoma. You're not supposed to be in the kingdom of darkness. You are supposed to be in the kingdom of light. God does not want that for you. God does not want that for you. 
It's a bit strange, is it not? All of a sudden, oh, this celebrity is a sangoma now. Since when? Since when? I thought, I thought you believed in God. I thought you be- but that's the problem, you see. They tell us they believe in God, and then we go like, that must mean Jesus. No, it does not. From a child, which means, who is what God is? To Meshach, which means I'm despised, contemptible, humiliated, wounded emotions. And that's the world we live in, where you can, it's a world of shame, and they tell you to embrace your shame. Hey, you come and you say, I'm depressed, and they say, stay depressed, stay anxious. That's what we want for you. But I'm here to tell you that, no, 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 no. Take off that spirit of heaviness and put on a garment of praise. Give Jesus praise if you believe that. From Azariah, which means Yahweh's help, to Abednego, servant of Nebo. The word Nebo means to prophesy, meaning don't follow God's prophecy over your life. Go with what the devil says. And maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, Clive, the devil's already written my script for me. I'm already in the marriage. I'm already, the kid is already there. I don't, I feel like my story's already written. And while the devil may have a script for you, I'm here to to tell you that the Lord has a better one for you. He has an amazing way of taking things and working them out for the good of those who love him because that's who God is. It means redirected purpose if you're making notes. So what do we do with this new name of ours? Number one, we let the one who designed me define me. I'm going to say what God says. I'm going to say that God is right and I am not. I'm not going to live by my emotions and my feelings. I'm not going to be a person who lives according to the world, but a person who lives according to the word of God. Why? Because God created me. And that requires intimacy. And that's why you're here today to lift your hands and to say, Lord, it's all about you, to experience a touch from heaven in this building. Did you experience that in worship? That's God calling you. These weekend services give us the opportunity to remember who we are. Psalm 139 verse 13 says, for you created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. Come on, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. We do not believe in abortions in this church. That child has the right to live. That child has the right to live. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Secondly, we need to see God the right way. I want to let you know that God loves you. You might say, Clive, you don't know what I was doing last night. You don't know the websites that I was on last night. But I'm here to tell you, God loves you. He doesn't see you for who you are right now. He sees you for who you can be. He sees you for who you can be. So maybe you might have questions. How do I know that? Clive, I don't really know who I am. Why don't you go on growth track today? Step one. And we can tell you a little bit about yourself. We can tell you, hey, man, you've got gifts inside of you. Hey, man, I know you've heard some stuff from your family, but you've got something inside that can change the world. Hey, you can go out and make a difference. Psalm 139 says, how precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. Number three, allow God to heal my heart. God sees how your heart can be healed and how the names can be rewritten, but it will never happen until you say, God, I give you permission. Now, I'm not saying that in this very service, raise your hand, begin to confess your sins in front of all these people. No. What I am saying, though, is you could join a small group, 
And in the context of a small group, you can begin to share that with people. People that maybe have lost a child like you did. Maybe people that have gone through a drug addiction like you have. They can sit there in that context of relationships. And you can begin to say, God, I give you permission. I shed light on the things that I've kept in the dark. And he will change your life. It says this in Psalm 139 verse 23. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lastly, we're going to invite God into our future. Life, joy, fulfillment, they all have a path and God is inviting you to it. And you will never, you will never be able to experience what God has for you until you fix what's going on on the inside, child of God. You will never be able to do that. So I could stand here and say, okay, well, everybody lift your hands. I'm going to pray one prayer, and your name will be completely changed. I believe that God can do that. But the truth of the matter is, family, it's actually a journey. It's a journey. And we as a church don't want you to go on that journey by yourself. We want to walk that journey with you. I'm saying allow us this year. Let this be the year where you say, cool, I'm going I'm to join Bible college. Cool. I'm going to give God one year of my life. I'm going to join a small group. I'm going to go to the growth track, see what it's all about. And I believe that while the world may say, while people have said, while your brothers and your cousins and your aunts and your uncles have told you that you are ordinary, God has called you to be extraordinary. Can you give God praise in this place? With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're in this place today and you say, Clive, you don't know the stuff I've been through, man. You don't know the things that I've been called. Clive, you don't understand that I've been ostracized and told to leave my family. Clive, I've done stuff. I've been through stuff. I myself have hurt people. God can never change me. Child of God, he can. If you're here and you want to make Jesus Christ Lord of your life, if you want to rewrite your name, if you want your name to be written in the Lamb's book of life, I want to give you that opportunity. If you're here and you say, I want to make Jesus Christ Lord of my life, or perhaps you're saying, Clive, I actually am a Christian, or I was a Christian, but unfortunately, I've backslidden. I'm not in communion, in community anymore, and I've done some stuff that I can't even speak about. I want to come back. I want to let you know that God is waiting to put a robe over your shoulder, a ring on your finger, and sandals on your feet. Or perhaps you're saying, Clive, I'm not even sure that if I were to die today, that heaven would be my home. This call is for you as well. The Bible says it's very simple. We're gonna pray a prayer. And with your mouth, you will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in your heart, you will believe that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. So at the count of three, I'm gonna ask, if you are one of those three people, you wanna know who Jesus is, you wanna come back into the family of God. Or thirdly, you wanna just make sure that if you were to leave here today and you were to die, that heaven will be your home. When I count to three, I'm gonna ask that you would raise your hand, not to embarrass you, but so that I know who you are and we can pray together, okay? One, two, three. Thank you for those hands. Thank you for those hands. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. God bless you. God bless you, every single one of you that is raising those hands. If you're in one of the other venues, raise your hand. If you're watching online, raise your hand. This could be the first day of the rest of your life. God wants to rewrite the things that are written on your heart. If you're sitting here and your heart is beating outside of your chest, he's calling you. 
I'm going to give you one last opportunity. One, two, three. Thank you. God bless you. Just keep those hands raised. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Just keep those hands raised until a dream teamer from our church comes and lays their hand on your shoulder to let you know that God loves you and that we love you. And once that dream teamer gets there, you can put your hand back down. Thank you, Jesus. Now we're going to pray a prayer together. And I'm going to ask that everybody pray together. Let's say this. Say, Heavenly Father, I acknowledge that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Today, I choose to make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. I believe that Jesus Christ was born in a manger, died on a cross, and after three days, he was raised to life again. Say, Jesus, make my heart your home. I will never be the same ever again. This is the first day of the rest of my life. My name is written in the Lamb's book of life. In Jesus' name. Come on, and everybody say it. Come on, give God praise, everybody. What a decision. Thank you for joining us during this episode of Living Life with Dr. Theo and Bev Fulmerantz. We hope that through this inspired teaching, you had an encounter with God. If you enjoy the teaching ministry of Apostle Theo and Dr. Bev Volmerantz and would like to enjoy more resources, we hope you will visit our website at www.christianfamilychurch.co.za or for our American listeners, www.christianfamilychurchsa.com. Thank you.